We're going to go ahead and get started. Got a few, uh, we've got several announcements for you this morning and several announcements. That's right, Nina. Appreciate that. Several announcements for you. And then um, I, I'm getting. Thank you, Brad. Good morning, everyone. Um, something to mention, um, you can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Uh, in the bulletin, the sermon title is Solo Fide instead of Sola Fide. That's a typo. I'm not trying to do something uh, funny or new with the doctrine of justification by faith alone. <laughs> God forbid. Um, so anyway, if you want to just draw a little line on the bottom of that um, last O, I'll wait. Just kidding. All right, so as we continue then in our series of Reformed Distinctives this morning, we'll be considering the doctrine of sola fide, justification by faith alone. Uh, during the Protestant Reformation, we think of the, the formal cause of debate between Rome and the Reformers as the doctrine of sola scriptura, who ultimately has authority over these matters of dispute. But we understand that sola fide was the material cause of the debate. This doctrine was the matter at hand, the matter that was being disputed. How are sinful men and women justified? I want us to consider the level of importance of this doctrine. Is justification a doctrine worth fighting over? Was it right to view the doctrine of sola fide important enough to spur the entire Protestant Reformation? Just think of the massive disruption to church unity that that would have caused. Was it worth it? Well, obviously, Martin Luther thought it was worth it, right? But, um, you know, Luther refers to the, just, uh, to the doctrine of justification by faith alone as the, um, as the article upon which the church stands or falls. But Luther was a little brash, right? He may have been considered a troublemaker. So maybe he was making a mountain out of a molehill with this doctrine. Well, then you've got Calvin, who was calmer, relatively, and he said that justification by faith alone was the main hinge upon which Christianity turned. So we try to be careful not to unnecessarily divide over doctrine. Immature Christians, myself included at times, can get worked up over certain doctrines and ready to pull away from those who differ with us. Maturity then would call for a recognition of degrees of importance with regard to doctrine. Some doctrines are part of the drivetrain of Christianity. They're vital. They cannot be negotiated. Doctrines like the Trinity and the Incarnation and penal substitution and others, but some doctrines such as precise views on eschatology or how to practice the Sabbath, those do not strike at the vitals of Christianity. To be sure, they are important. All doctrine is important. But we do not consider another an unbeliever because he or she has a different view of the end times. The question for us this morning is, what kind of category does the doctrine of justification fall under? Is sola fide really important and worth fighting over and dividing over and even dying for? Or can solid Christians disagree on it? 
I hope the answer to this question emerges as we go on this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll read our passage. Heavenly Father, as we consider this great doctrine of sola fide, Lord, I pray that, that you would help me, help me with the preparation of this sermon, help me as I deliver it, clear the static that I may bring to it with um, my, my frailty and my, um, my remaining sinfulness. I pray, Lord, that the truth of this doctrine from your word would impact your people for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Romans chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 21, and we'll read, we'll read through verse 27. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from from works of the law. Amen. This is God's word. Sorry, I think I read an extra verse there than I told you I was going to read. So normally I try to limit the number of points to three, um, but today I have five. Five points, which should be easy for Calvinists to remember. Here are the points then for consideration. What issue does the doctrine of justification seek to address? That's point number one. What is the Roman Catholic view of justification? What is the Reformed view of justification? What kind of faith justifies? And where does justifying faith come from? All right. What issue does the doctrine of justification seek to address? One of the things that's recognized by Christians and non-Christians alike is the fact that there is estrangement present in this world. Estrangement is no longer being on friendly terms with another. We all experience this at some level with other people, and non-Christians do as well. Even though unbelievers might not blame sin for the cause of estrangement, they nevertheless recognize that something isn't right with the person with whom they are estranged. Estrangement is a mild way of putting it, simply not being on friendly terms with another. But a stronger way to put it would be enmity. Hatred is usually the emotion that is experienced between people who are no longer on friendly terms. This person hates that person for such and such reasons, and that person returns the sentiment by hating this person for other such reasons. It happens that sinful people don't like other sinful people very much. It's an amazing work of God's common grace that people don't hate each other more than they currently do. We all have aspects of our personality that are worthy of hatred. Those, acts, those aspects being sin or unrighteousness. <clears throat> I, I had a friend who joked with me, um, and he was, he was usually quick at coming up with, with clever sayings, and he said, uh, he said, they must call you lefty because you just ain't right. 
Well, he, he was right. I, I am left-handed, right? <laughs> but, but he's also right because, because something about me ain't right. We all have this problem of unrighteousness. And as we think about that, we ask, what, what is the standard of righteousness that we fall short of? Why is it right to call us unrighteous? God himself is the standard of righteousness. He is perfectly righteous. He is goodness in himself. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as we read in our passage, and our sinfulness causes estrangement not only with one another, but more importantly, it causes estrangement with God. How can God, who is perfectly righteous, have friendship with us who are unrighteous? 2 Corinthians 6.14 asks, What fellowship has light with darkness? I think sinful man in his arrogance doesn't realize the severity of the estrangement and indeed the enmity that they have with God because of sin. How can sinners possibly have a friendly relationship with God? But it's worse than that. Not only is God someone with whom we need a friendly relationship, but he's also the judge of all the world. And we are guilty sinners. Here then is the problem. We are unrighteous and need to be made right with a righteous God. We are guilty sinners and need to be made right with a holy judge. This is a serious problem that, if left unanswered, will result in all of us going to hell. The doctrine of justification seeks to address how it is that sinners are made right with God. The doctrine of justification seeks to answer how an unjust person can ever survive the final judgment of a just and holy God. So what is the Roman Catholic view of justification? Well, as we look at the Roman Catholic view of justification, we need to remember something. Um, that this, what we're about to review here, is the official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. It is possible, of course, that people who attend Roman Catholic churches are unaware of this doctrine or hold a different doctrine. But for the purposes of comparing Rome's view with the Reformed view, we'll consider the official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church regarding justification. So Rome's understanding of how a sinner is made right with God involves a process. The first step in the process is the sacrament of baptism. In baptism, grace is infused or poured into the sinner for justification. The sacrament of baptism itself is the instrument of justification. The act of baptism causes justification for the person being baptized. And as a child grows older, they must assent to or have faith and cooperate with the infused grace that was given to them at baptism. But the justification uh, that occurs in baptism is not secure. It can be lost if a person commits mortal sin. Rome categorizes the severity of sins as venial, which are the lighter kind, and mortal being the weightier kind. Mortal sin is called mortal sin because it kills justification. If this is the final chapter or life for a person and they die in this condition, having committed more mortal sin, then they are going to hell. So, um, however, uh, for a person who has committed mortal sin, 
in the Roman Catholic view, making shipwreck of their soul, there is yet a remedy available, right? So if you're a Roman Catholic and you've committed a mortal sin, that's not the end of the story. We've, we've got, they've got help for you. So um, it's what's called the second plank of justification for Rome, which happens in the sacrament of penance. To regain justification, faith, again, is required. And, the one, um, and one must participate in the sacrament, sacramental confession, works of satisfaction. You know, we, we think of saying a certain number of Hail Marys or a certain number of Our Fathers. Um, certain works of satisfaction are given, and if they're done, you can receive what's called priestly absolution. The works of satisfaction are considered meritorious. They're called congruous merit. Again, I'm giving you a lot of Roman Catholic terminology. Congruous meaning that it's fitting for God to restore a person to justification who has done the works of satisfaction. Faith in the Roman Catholic system is required. No doubt about that. You cannot be justified without faith. But faith by itself doesn't justify a person. Faith is necessary for justification, but faith alone is not sufficient for justification. Grace is infused or poured into a person, and a person needs to cooperate with that grace to such a degree that they actually become righteous. It's only after you reach personal righteousness that God will declare you righteous. In the Roman system, you really have sanctification happening first, and then justification happens after sanctification is completed. You see, Rome believes that God will not declare a person to be righteous who is not personally righteous in and of themselves. Now, of course, many die before sanctification is complete, and there is remaining sin that needs to be purged. So time needs to be spent in purgatory to purify the sinner from the remaining sin. The more sin you have to purge, the longer you spend there. This might sound complicated for some of you who have, are not familiar with Roman Catholic doctrine, but bear with me, it's almost over. The Roman Catholic system is justification by faith plus works. You need faith, you need sacraments, you need penance and works of satisfaction. You need to be sanctified and have personal righteousness in here within you. And if you die before getting the required righteousness, you need to spend time in purgatory. Most believers, Rome would say, have to spend some time in purgatory, and they don't imagine it to be a, a pretty place. Uh, however, some saints, uh, for example, uh, St. Francis, they've done such a fine job at acquiring righteousness in this life that they acquired more righteousness than they needed. More righteousness than they needed to get to heaven. So no time in purgatory for them. And there's a place where their extra credit righteousness goes, and that's called the treasury of merits. Well, in the time of the Reformation, righteousness was for sale out of the treasury of merits. Uh, if you had a dead relative that you liked and didn't care for the thought of them being in purgatory, you could help cut down their time by purchasing an indulgence for them. Now, think, think of the irony of this. Rome calls, Rome calls the reformed understanding of imputed righteousness a legal fiction, right? We'll get deeper into, uh, into this when we get into the reformed view, but let me, let me just say this for now. 
Imputation is the idea of a transfer from one to another, and this is what Rome rejects. But how else besides imputation, besides a transfer, does St. Francis's extra righteousness get moved over to the account of your dead relative? Okay, so for those not familiar with Roman Catholic teaching, this is probably an earful for you. Let me simplify it this way. Rome teaches that a sinner is made right with God by having faith and by doing good works. Faith alone does not save according to Rome. And the system of good works and purgatory and treasury of merits ends up being a real mess viewed from one angle or a huge money-making venture viewed from another angle. Martin Luther didn't like it. He exposed it, and the Reformation happened. Now, the last note on Rome is in the sixth session of the Council of Trent, they say that anyone who teaches that justification is by faith alone is anathema, which means they are damned. So when it comes to how important is this doctrine of justification, well, Rome considers this doctrine of, of the highest importance. All right, enough, enough with the Roman Catholic view. How about the Reformed view of justification? Uh, let's talk about what the term justification actually means. In Latin, which was the language that the Bible was translated into in Luther's day, the word justification actually had a somewhat misleading definition. It meant to make righteous. Uh, and Luther in his early days operated on, on this definition. To be made righteous has the idea of you actually becoming righteous in and of yourself. How could Luther in a monastery after coveting say honestly that he had been made righteous? But as you know, the New Testament wasn't written in Latin, but it was written in Greek. And when Luther discovered that the Greek word for justification meant to be declared righteous, then the gates of paradise swung open for him. But there's still an intellectual problem, and Rome certainly pointed this out. How could God declare a sinner to be righteous when the sinner is still a sinner? God cannot lie, so how could he declare a sinner to be righteous? This is what Rome calls the legal fiction of the Reformed view of justification. The reformers understood the term justification to be a legal term. It's a forensic declaration, a pronouncement in the arena of law. In justification, God declares, he pronounces that in his sight, we are considered or deemed or regarded as just or, or righteous. So we read in uh, Genesis 15, 6 regarding Abram, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now let's read Paul in Romans 4, verses 1 through 5. What then, shall we say, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. 
and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So as we, as we think of sin uh, as debt and righteousness as credit, um, it, I think it's helpful, it's natural for us to think of like a, you know, a bank account with a debit card. So think of a, think of a financial account that you have. Um, you, have uh, you can have debt on that account. Uh, you can also have credit on that account. Every swipe of the card accumulates debt. We all know what that's about. And every deposit of funds accumulates credit to the account. Let's just say, um, for example, that perfect righteousness is having $1 million of credit in your account. Well, Rome might have $10,000 given at baptism, $10,000 of credit, and assent with faith is worth some more credit. Every mass that you participate in is worth some more credit. Uh, good works are worth credit. Venial sins, those are debt. Mortal sins, that puts you in the red. Penance is credit. And, it, and if you die, let's say, with $100,000 in your account, you end up um, uh, having to go to purgatory or purchasing indulgences to get, get you up to the required credit of $1 million. The Reformed understanding would be this, that you, you are in the red already, and your debt is immense, and it grows every day as you sin in thought, word, and deed. Um, and perfect righteousness would be, we'll just say, the, the $1 million in the black, uh, in, in the credit. So when God declares you righteous, it's because he imputes or credits your account with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Your debt is paid in full on the cross. All of, your, all of the red, all of the debt, all of the sin, all of that is paid for in full on the cross, no purgatory. And your credit is full of perfect righteousness. It's not your own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. L Luther came up with the saying, a lot of you are familiar with, simul justus et peccator. Christians are at the same time just and sinner. Just because of the righteousness of Christ alone imputed to their account, and sinner because of who we are in and of ourselves. God's declaration that we are just is not on account of what we are in and of ourselves. Rather, we are declared just because of the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to us. There is a, there's really a world of difference between the word infuse, which is to pour into, or impute, which is to cover. So the righteousness that justifies and covers sinners is Again, what Luther called an alien righteousness, not, not alien in the way that we think of green-headed aliens, but, but alien in the sense of something foreign to us, something outside of us. This is righteousness that is, does not inherit within us. Um, and so we don't add anything to Christ's perfect righteousness for our justification. We, we don't need to add anything, and anything that we possibly could add, if we tried to add something to Christ's perfect righteousness, anything that we would add would just contaminate the perfection of the righteousness. What, what comes out of us is not perfect righteousness. 
So anything that you would add or try to add uh, would just contaminate the perfect righteousness of Christ. Justification, then, is by the righteousness of Christ and, and his righteousness alone. Christ's righteousness is perfect, and perfect righteousness is exactly what sinners need. And how did the reformers understand the instrument of justification? How does the transaction of Christ's righteousness to your account, how does that, how does that work? What, what, what makes that happen? How does the exchange go on? Well, is it by works of the law? No, we read by that, by works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The imputation of Christ's righteousness in justification is by faith and by faith alone. What kind of faith then justifies? So before we discuss the kind of faith that justifies, we should get a working definition of, of what faith is. Um, there's usually three elements to faith that we think about. There's, there's understanding, there's some, some level of knowledge of the proposition, there's assent, there's believing the truthfulness of the proposition, and then there's trusting, which is actually putting your trust in the truth of the proposition. So the example that was given, I think, by D. James Kennedy was the example of a chair. Right? Just imagine that you've never seen a chair before in your life. And if I explain to you, um, this piece of furniture has been constructed in order to hold your weight if you sit down on it. And you say, okay, I get it. I, I understand what, you, what you're saying. It's furniture that's supposed to hold people's weight. Now, do you believe that this chair will hold your weight if you sat on it? Yeah, sure, I believe it. It's made out of oak, right? Yeah, I believe. Well, are you trusting? Are you actually sitting in the chair? Are you trusting this chair? Is it actually holding your weight? Right, so, so true faith then has uh, an acknowledgement of an understanding of the truth of what's being proposed, believing that it's, that it would actually, that it's true, and trusting in it, actually, actually trusting in it. So the word faith, like the word belief, requires an object, right? In, in this case of the example, a chair. If I say to you, I have faith, you should ask me, in what or in whom? And if I tell you, oh, it's good to believe, it's just good to believe, you should say, in what or, or in whom, right? You can go to Target and get a, get a cool little picture that says believe or faith, or just, yeah, in what? What, what do you have faith in? What do you believe in? It needs an object. Everyone has faith in something. So when we speak about sinners being made right with God, being justified in his sight, we mean that faith alone is, has a defined object. Christ is the object of our faith. Christ alone is the object. So we have some level of... Um, we have some level of understanding of the gospel, those of us who are Christian, which is the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's the understanding. You understand the gospel? Has it been presented? Have I told you who Jesus is and what he's done? You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yes, I understand that. We believe that the truth proposed in the gospel about who Jesus is and what he's done for sinners, we believe that to be true, and we trust that the life, death, burial, uh, resurrection and ascension of Christ is what saves us. We, we trust it. 
So Jesus Christ himself is the object of our faith. We, we place our faith alone in Christ alone for our justification. So do, do you understand that, right? Do you understand the gospel? Do you understand what's being proposed to you in the gospel? What Christ has done? Do you have an understanding of that? Do you understand the offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ for sinners? Do you believe it to be true that Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead for your justification? Are you trusting in his work and in his work alone to make you right in the sight of God? Well, that's our hope. That's, I hope that we all do. Perfect righteousness is the only righteousness that will make you right with a perfect God. And Jesus Christ, as he is offered in the gospel, provides his own perfect righteousness to sinners who trust in him alone. One, one last thing then to mention about uh, the kind of faith that saves. Um, the object of our faith is Jesus Christ, as we've said, but there is such a thing as a dead faith. Um, James, uh, in the book of James, speaks about that kind of faith, dead faith. Will that kind of faith save you? So um, this is the kind of faith that is, that is a profession of faith only. Uh, R.C. Sproul is fond of saying, it's not a profession of faith that saves you, but it's actually the, the possession of faith that saves you. Many people say, sure, yeah, yeah, I believe that. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I believe the gospel. Well, maybe you do. But you saying that you do, you saying that you have faith doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that, that you have faith. Not everyone who claims to have faith actually has it. The kind of faith that saves is a living faith. It's an active faith. Now, the strength of saving faith varies from Christian to Christian. Remember, Christ used, would say, oh, ye of little faith, right? If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, right? There's a, there's a difference in, the, in the, uh, the strength of saving faith from one Christian to another. Um, it is possible to have little faith and yet that little faith is saving faith. This is, this is really so important. It's not the strength of the faith that saves you. We, we have to get an understanding of that. It's not, the, it's not the strength of the faith that saves you, nor is it a proper intellectual understanding of the doctrine of sola fide. That doesn't save you. We're not saying that you're saved if you understand the doctrine of sola fide very well. No, that's, that's, that's not what we say. It is the object of faith, Christ himself, that saves you. We pray that God would increase our faith, but even a weak living faith in a strong Savior will save you. It's the strength of the Savior that saves rather than the strength of the faith that we have. So we can see the difference between Rome's view and the Reformed view in the form of an equation. For Rome, it's faith plus works that equal justification. And for the reformers, it's faith equals justification plus works. So the works flow from the fact that we have already been justified. True justification is not a process. It's not a process, but rather it happens in a point in time. True believers never grow in justification. If you are justified, you will never 
be more justified. You'll never need to be more justified. We're justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. If, if the faith you profess to have doesn't produce the fruit of good works, then it's not a living faith that you have, but, but a dead faith. So think of the ingredients here, right? You've got faith, and you've got justification, and you've got works, and then you've got justification, and then you've got sanctification. You think of all the elements and trying to get them all uh, in, in, the right, in the right order. Are, are we really saying that having works on the wrong side of the equation of justification will keep you out of heaven? Are we really saying that putting sanctification prior to justification will send you to hell? Yeah, that's what we're saying. That's exactly what we're saying. Because doing so indicates that you are at least partially trusting in your own goodness or in your own righteousness to make you right before God. And by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Do, do you see why this is so important? This is a matter of heaven and hell. Think, think of it this way. Are, are, we, are we so insistent that a tree must be planted with the roots in the ground and the branches and the leaves in the air? Is that so important? What if someone gets, somehow they get up and down mixed up and they bury the branches and the leaves in the ground and they stick the root ball straight up in the air in the sunshine? Well, you got a dead tree that's not gonna produce any fruit and is only worthy to be thrown in the fire. So, a living faith in Christ alone justifies a guilty sinner, and we are commanded to repent and have faith in the gospel. Um, here now is the final point. Where does justifying faith come from? Where does it come from? The Bible gives us a proper anthropology, a proper understanding of mankind. Fallen man in his natural condition is dead in his trespasses and sin. We have sinful and stony hearts that are so wicked, who can understand them? Is it possible for a fallen man to generate a living faith out of his dead and wicked heart? Of course not. Of course not. We believe, we believe that regeneration, the new birth, which is a work of God alone, we believe that that happens before we have faith. Um, R.C. Sproul, again, is fond of saying that regeneration precedes faith. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We understand that God normally uses means to accomplish his ends. God, of course, can give saving faith to anyone he wants, and he can do it directly into a person's heart. He doesn't need to use any means at all. He can do that, and maybe he does do that in some cases. But normally, God works through the proclamation of the gospel. Romans 10:17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. God gives the gift of saving faith through the proclamation of the word of Christ, the gospel. So if you do not have saving faith in Christ alone, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6.2. Today, if you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your heart as in the rebellion, Hebrews 3.15. For those of us who have saving faith, behold the goodness and the kindness and the mercy of God in Christ. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God so that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God has removed the penalty of sin forever when he justified us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, Romans 8.33. The great problem of our estrangement from God has been met, has been answered by God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word that, that tells us how to understand what you have done for us. We can say it shorthand just by saying salvation is of the Lord, and we, we, we know that you, that you have saved. You, we know that you sent your Son into the world to save sinners. And um, we, we pray, Lord, that you would give us a proper understanding of the doctrine of sola fide. Help us to recognize the great importance of it. Help us to never negotiate this doctrine, for this is the doctrine that saves sinners. We pray, Lord, that that your spirit would take this truth and would confirm for us the saving faith that you have graciously given us in Jesus Christ. Amen.